0: Welcome to the Sineos Health Podcast Maps Edition. I'm Suma Ramadas from Sineos Health, and I lead medical affairs here. In this series, we spoke to industry experts at the global annual Maps meeting in March. Through these conversations, we focused in on the impact and value of medical affairs today, where the industry is heading, and how we are going to get there. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Kirk Shepard, co founder of Maps and chief medical officer and head of global medical affairs at Eisai. Dr. Shepard has effectively brought medical affairs into the C-suite, and we'll be discussing with him the importance of education, communication, collaboration, and what needs to change as the function continues to advance as a value-based strategic leader. Here's what he had to say.
1: Well, I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist by training, practiced at the Cleveland Clinic for a while, and then went into industry, and currently I am the chief medical officer and head of global medical affairs for AZI Incorporated.
0: We're very excited to talk to you today. So we wanted to ask you and your thoughts about how we can continue to elevate medical affairs and what medical affairs might look like in 2030. Now, we know that medical affairs has undergone quite a lot of transformation of the past five to 10, even 20 years, but medical affairs is really rising to the top as not only a third strategic pillar alongside clinical and commercial but also really taking a much more leadership role in an organization to help drive the entire life cycle continuum. So maybe we can start by just seeing what you think about the trends and where do you think is going high level? And then we can dig down deep into that.
1: Well, Suma, thank you. First of all, I've been a part of a couple of panels and meetings lately, that MAPS and some other meetings. And they always ask me, where is medical affairs going by 2025? So you've advanced this by five years that maybe I can explore even further to 2030. I think an important part and a lot we've discussed is, of course, our strategic position within the company, which I think is being pretty much solidified. And very important, it's being solidified in the development of products. So it's all about partnership. And medical, I think most people agree, and it's at that way in our company, that we come in now at phase one. So from phase one on through peri-launch and launch, Medical Affairs is present as a partner. And we've gone so far as to form stage gates, like Regulatory Affairs used to do and the pipeline for R&D. We have these also for Medical Affairs, so that we make sure we are present and being proactive at phase one, phase two, phase three, and beyond phase four, as far as the product development. It's very important that we also work on partnership. Partnership is extremely important between commercial, clinical development, and our earlier R&D colleagues. And what we've worked on, actually, with three task force is especially our interface with clinical development. And three task force have been working on what is each of our roles in the strategy of the production of evidence and data in the future, What are our responsibilities at the investigator sites as we go through all these phases? What does clinical development do? What does medical do, especially the MSLs? And then how do we communicate the data as it comes out? From phase one and phase two, we we will have field medical team out there and, and medical people communicating to our outside stakeholders as far as what the product is doing as far as the data. And communication, of course, beyond as we get closer, both digitally as far as face-to-face, what our product shows as far as the data. So this is, I think, extremely important that we have our place early on in production and then also define carefully what we do at each of those phases.
0: I think it's important to note that you're involved in phase one, phase two to help shepherd and identify what those evidentiary needs are across the entire lifecycle, as you demonstrated and talked about. Now, I'd like to dig in on that partnership piece of it. It's also important that medical affairs remains autonomous. How do you manage that partnership by ensuring that you're very aware of the needs of your functional partners, but at the same time, making sure that you're able to shepherd and drive that process through?
1: Well, first of all, I like very much that you use the verb shepherd twice. That's important to me being Dr. Shepherd. but (laughs) we have been leading with our partners, commercial, and I'll mention R&D, and that includes clinical development, a process that, as I said, defines our roles in each of those phases, so that at each phase, we educate them as far as what medical affairs has to offer. And this is very important, not just to go ahead and form a process so that the people who are on the product team, which we are a part of from phase one on, understand what we can do for them. And we found the greatest gap from great researchers coming on board as far as our product teams early on, they really don't know what medical does. So how are they going to ask us or expect us to do anything? So we almost have like a branding campaign explaining to them what medical affairs is and where our important role is and how we all fit together, not just us, but commercial and R&D. For instance, data generation. No doubt about it, the pivotal trials for regulatory approval are in the hands of our very capable clinical development people. But our job is to look forward as far as more external-facing data, as far as real-world evidence, as far as IISs, and to help complement what they're doing in the pivotal trials. Also, our role is very important, too, in Working with them as far as the endpoint of those pivotal trials. So it isn't as if we leave clinical development alone there, but we partner again with them to help them define what's important for our patients, what's important perhaps for reimbursement later on, and not just regulatory approval alone. So by defining carefully, constantly, not taking for granted that they understand this, but constantly branding ourselves of what we can do for them, the expectations they should have of us, and that's why we form the stage gates. By the end of phase one, by the end of phase two, et cetera. This is what we should accomplish.
0: That's great. And I think that integrated evidence generation, as you discuss, is really critical. And I love that what you're doing is ensuring that you're educating not only in what medical affairs is, but also can do for each of your partners. That's a very important point. You've mentioned a lot of partners so far. You have RWE, real world evidence, how the ISTs or IITs are progressing, your clinical partners Market access, commercial partners, etc. How are you seeing the changes in the evidentiary needs as it comes to what trials are doing, and also as it relates to DE and I? Would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, this has really been an important advancement in the last few years. I think people realize that the old patterns of forming data generation just around the pivotal trials and safety, which are extremely important, of course, that is the spine of development, is going to fall short. Of what is needed once we get out into the field and so we from the very beginning are emphasizing all the data that will be needed for reimbursement and the understanding of our stakeholders out there who use this drug of what this drug will do in real world settings and fda as you know is more and more supporting us as far as the development of data saying it's almost imperative that you do develop that so these discussions come together in another place where medical affairs has stepped up and now is one of the leaders. I never like to say own because we're just a leader. We're another partner together working on the data gap analysis. So that data gap analysis comes in very early where we bring together all of the disciplines, that's regulatory, R&D, medical, commercial, all regions, so it's not just US-centric or Europe-centric, and really look at what is the data that's needed, both beyond the pivotal trials, but also as far as each of our countries, as far as the evidence that this drug can be used well and safely. And this really gives us then the priority setting as we move through the phases of what data we will be producing. So that open communication, as far as data generation with these data gap analyses that occur, at least every year, and in many cases, every six months, depending on how fast the landscape is changing around you, and also depending on what the data is showing you on your own product. So we ask our people, wow, what changes have occurred since the last time we met? What data should we be producing? And then an easy way, too, to bring your partners in is what would you like to say about this product that you think it can do, but we don't have the data to support it yet? And that a lot of times will bring us around to the important data we need for the product.
0: I'd like to pivot a little bit because you've mentioned quite a lot of ways where medical affairs has truly stepped up to, again, help their partners within an organization and around the globe for all of this. But with this new, maybe newer role, the characteristics or the profile of the medical affairs leader has also changed. I'd love to hear how you've seen that progress and where you think that's going as it comes to the types of characteristics we've seen before with medical affairs leaders and organizations, which is heavily science-driven, which of course it still needs to be. But what else do you think is important as organizations continue to evolve their functions?
1: So this is an area we've worked on a lot and you can never be finished. This is a path that we're on right now, but we realize that there are many Capabilities, competencies that are needed by medical people that weren't needed maybe 10, 15 years ago. So we formed what we call the ASI Medical Affairs College, or the EMAC, as we call it. And it has four schools of knowledge. And the first is around the data, the clinical science. That's school one. We've always done well with that as far as training our people, as you mentioned, as far as scientific communication about the data. The second one is around how do I become a better medical affairs person, looking at those capabilities that are needed to be a better medical affairs person. For instance, our knowledge about producing data, our knowledge about biostatistics now, our knowledge about business acumen and knowing how the world works out there as far as reimbursement. So we work hard as far as the training of people in that way. The third school is around soft skills, as a lot of people call them, leadership. How do I lead a team? How do I communicate with different disciplines? And the fourth school is knowing about your organization. How do I get an IIS approved in a certain country? How do I get a publication done? Things like this, so that they can really know how to work the machine. So with those four schools, we've worked on the capabilities of medical people. And one of the biggest subjects that came up most recently in the MAPS meeting and another meeting where I was is the increasing need. For our medical people to not only be trained in the areas I've mentioned, but one that falls into the third school is around business acumen, making sure our people have a good basic knowledge of how the business works for our patients.
0: I think those programs are absolutely critical and I'm sure many organizations are looking for ways to be able to do that. I'd like to dig in quickly on where you see the future of medical affairs executive leaders. And how they can expand their acumen from just thinking about an asset focus to really understanding organizational strategy and changing their mindset to make sure that they're really focusing on the capabilities needed rather than just what the science might require.
1: Another great question, Suma, And that's what we're looking at, particularly with our potential leaders for the future, what we call our emerging leaders. Leaders in medical affairs, let's say in the next five or 10 years, are going to need much more than the leaders know. You got to look at a person who's more holistic as far as bringing the product to the patient and making sure that they use it well and safely. So that means no longer are we just relegating ourselves to a smaller area of activity as far as developing the medical affairs strategy, the data generation within specific areas. We've already mentioned real-world evidence, IISs, communicating this, then bringing in insights and building knowledge. And the fifth thing is, of course, the stakeholder interaction, both inside and outside. These are extremely important in the foundation of what we do. But now we see also that medical affairs leaders should have a view beyond medical affairs, and into the other areas that make a product successful for our patients. So this involves having a knowledge around R&D, knowing how it works well, around the business, as I mentioned before, the business acumen, and being a person who provides leadership for a whole enterprise or corporation than just for medical affairs alone. And I might say that's also important for the leaders of our other partners that we work with, whether it's commercial R&D, that total vision of the company, of how we can help the patient no longer being siloed into individual areas. We should be looking at capabilities that are a thread that go through all of our leaders for all of the people we work with, not just medical affairs, but R&D, commercial, market access, etc.
0: And I love that you said that couldn't be more aligned. You mentioned that we really have to pivot from a functional-centric model to a capability-centric model. I'd love to hear some of the work that you've done to help that pivot to that capability-centric model where you're really focused on the capabilities required to achieve a particular objective rather than where it might sit in a particular function.
1: Yes, and I think that has to do with, of course, programs that have been developed in a culture beyond medical affairs. I have to say that our HR group and other people who work with that type of training and education have really been a help to us. No longer do we look at somebody who's just training in medical affairs, but we actually have involved them in what we call transformative leadership programs, emerging leadership programs. And notice I didn't say medical affairs. These are programs that bring all of our partners together, giving them those characteristics, those leadership qualities we've just talked about, but also having them work together for a period of about six months in these programs where they hear other people talking about what's needed and how we become better partners. So I think no longer can we isolate ourselves in silos and just provide training and be technocrats and go out and do our job. It's gotta be more of a holistic view and action about how we make the products from our company the best for our patients.
0: Fantastic answer. Thank you so much, Kirk. And we look forward to continuing our conversations with you.
1: Thank you very much, Suma.
0: So that's all for this episode of the Synios Health Podcast Maps Edition. I'm your host, Suma Ramadas. Be sure to check out the other episodes in the series, as well as topics across the product development lifecycle. You can do this by subscribing to the Synios Health Podcast, which can be found wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.